Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Central Oregon's most feisty and fascinating reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Our guest today is Joel Wirtz. He is the co-executive director of the Deschutes Defenders, the public defense nonprofit for Deschutes County. He earned his BA from Beloit College and his law degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's worked as a public defender since 2003, took over as a co-executive director of Crabtree and Ramsdorf in 2019, and renamed the firm the Deschutes Defenders to better reflect its role in the community. He's tried cases from shoplifting to murder, but is most proud of his work as a defense attorney for mental health court, helping people with a history of trauma, mental illness, and addiction. He wanted to we wanted to speak to Joel today in light of Measure 119 being on the ballot. In full disclosure, the Source Editorial Board endorsed in favor of the measure, which decriminalizes drugs in Oregon. Uh, Joel, thank you for being here. Uh, it's good to be here this afternoon. Thank Thanks you. for inviting me. Um, uh, Joel, can you describe the work of the Deschutes Defenders and the unique role it plays in Deschutes County? Yeah, so Deschutes Defenders is a public defense nonprofit that provides uh, attorneys to people who can't afford it in um, not only criminal matters, which people uh, generally understand what public defenders do, but we also represent or um, our attorneys for children you know, if they're in the foster care system. Uh, parents who are struggling maybe with mental illness and addiction or struggling parenting, uh, as well as people who are in a psychiatric hospital involuntarily, involuntarily, and they have a right to an attorney too. So our attorneys aren't just representing uh, adult criminal defendants, they're working with children and the mentally ill here in our community. Yeah. Just to take a side note on a little of your background, um, you got an interest story, interesting story about your dad who inspired you to go to law school at the age of 50 uh, after you got your degree. Tell us about how you motivated him to change careers later in life. How, um, does, one, how does one do that? I can't get my dad to turn off cable news, <laughs> let alone go to law school. So, Well, he figured if his son could get through law school, he could do that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, um, I, th I think um, there's always been an interest in our family or high respect for the law. Um, I come from a German-American background and my great-grandfather, when he retired uh, from the farm into a small town, he would go down to the courthouse uh, and that was the entertainment back in the 1930s and watch uh, lawyers uh, defending people and the, just the, the way they, they presented themselves. He, he was amazed by that uh, coming from the, the farm. And he always would tell stories about that, both to uh, his son and then to his um, grandchildren. And so that, that carried on. I had an uncle that went to law school, so my dad's brother. And then I ended up going to law school. So my dad at 50 hadn't done a variety of jobs, everything from being a foundry worker to um, working in a FedEx, being a business consultant. Um, and, and finally, he uh, decided, well, 
if my son can do it, I can do it too. So he took the, <laughs> he took the plunge and uh, it was great fun. To, uh, uh, I mean, I had been out of law school about and been practicing for about five years when he began practicing. So it's fun uh, him coming to me and asking questions about the law. So, uh, well, well, I can say that um, as a journalist, I, I always found it fascinating to cover court cases. I mean, most people are only in court usually if, if they are in on one side of the one side of the aisle or the other, um, prosecuting or being prosecuted. So, it's a completely different perspective when you're in there covering a case or you're. Um, simply wishing to get more informed as your grandfather probably was. So um, it, it can be fascinating. I mean, obviously it's your life passion, but uh, it doesn't strike me as being that odd. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to move on to like, what are some of the benefits that you feel uh, a career in public defense has given to you as opposed to yeah, you know, saying breaking off in something more lucrative like corporate law or business law or, or any of the other, uh, those kind of branches of it. Well, if you look at surveys consistently, the, the lawyers who are most happy with their career are uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys. They run neck and neck. And I, I think um, it, no one's going to be uh, really happy if it's simply about the money and the advantage with um, those careers in public defense in particular, because we actually get to work with uh, clients on a day-to-day -day basis is ability to help uh, them often help them at, at their lowest point. And uh, there's really no better feeling to watch someone who's at their lowest point, And then we see them, let's say two years later, and they're graduating from a, a drug court program or completing probation and they can get their uh, record cleared and I can see them five, six years down the road and with a, a new wife and at the grocery store and they have a, a wife and they tell me about um, the new job they have or the, the home that they just bought. I mean, there, there's no better feeling than to see them bloom in, in, in this community. And I see that time and time again. So, I mean, there, there is a path to um, recovery, uh, even if they're in this, um, stuck into this oftentimes unfair criminal justice system. So let's move on to talking about measure 110, which would decriminalize the possession of drugs like cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. Um, would you describe to our, for our listeners the highlights of this proposal and why you're in favor of it? I, I think the easiest way is to um, break it down into two sections and probably the largest and most important section there is what it does and that is fund more treatment for people who uh, have addiction in the community. And it, it, it brings a lot of money that Oregon currently gets from taxes for marijuana and, and, and funnels that into what's a woefully inadequate uh, funding of drug treatment here in Oregon. Um, so that's probably the most exciting aspect to it. Sort of the um, other end of it is it does um, 
reduce penalties from criminal to fines for a number of simple possession for uh, uh, some of the harder drugs, methamphetamine, heroin, and cocaine. Uh, and that's really an impetus that these, these people don't need to be stuck in the criminal justice system. They need to get treatment. Um, so we're not um, funneling them into homelessness, into addiction, their inability to get a, a job, their inability to get, get access to an apartment. Um, because that's, that's what I have seen is we're sending people into a spiral of not being able to get back on their feet. And I think measure 110 does just the opposite. And it gets them the treatment. It doesn't stigmatize them um, and prevent them from moving forward in their life. So lobbyists from the rehab industry and other recovery groups have come out against measure 110, which seems counterintuitive. Um, why are they opposing it? And is there any validity to their objections? Well, I, I think with any piece of, um, whether a measure or a piece of legislation, there's always the room to say there's some better way, there's other tweaks. But I, I, I'm really, th in, I think their concern is they, they want additional funding and specifically funding for their, their treatment centers. And it does some of that. Um, it, there, there is uh, an emphasis certainly on initial treatment on it and the ability to um, get people immediately into a place where they can um, recover so I understand their, some of their concerns, but I, and I, it sounds like they want to get um, a different uh, type of bill and different funding structure. And I certainly think they, whether measure 110 passes or not, they certainly can go to the legislature and look for additional ways to get funding. And for sure, we need to get more funding uh, for treatment, but we need to do something immediately um, and we need to stop stigmatizing addiction. And so it, it, it does boggle uh, one's mind a bit why um, they would be opposed to this. I think they can meet their goals, uh, again, whether or not Measure 110 passes. Do you have any thoughts about, I mean, there just seems to be this trend right now with regard to legislation. And, you know, on this podcast, we've talked to other people in the mental health profession. And in this area, there just seems to be, like you were saying, this destigmatization of people caught in addiction, people with mental health issues. And it hasn't been that long, or maybe I'm wrong, when you know, it was three strikes and you're out, regardless of your mental health condition or your drug addiction or any of that. Do you, what do you feel is driving this? And, and do you feel like the, I mean, I suppose we'll know with measure 10, whether the winds are changing, but to me, it's even a success that measure 110 got on the ballot. I mean, we wouldn't have been talking about this. I don't think even four years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's been an immense cultural change in the last five years and even in the last three um, about destigmatizing, whether it's mental illness or um, addictions. So, yeah, it certainly is a victory that we've gone from a, 
a place where even simple possession would send you to prison for two years to where we currently are at in Oregon, where simple possession can be, in most cases, can be a misdemeanor. So for sure, we've moved the, the ball forward. Um, I, I think it's reflective, one, of um, just more awareness and people willing to speak about both their personal experiences or family experiences and the struggles with addiction from politicians to celebrities. Um, I think it's also a reflection of how, you know, the way we've been uh, trying to deal with addiction in our community, which is simply stigmatized stigmatization and just criminalization has just been fail, failure. I think people are tired of spending um, their hard-earned tax dollars on something that doesn't get them anything. It doesn't make us any more safe. Um, it doesn't uh, help anybody move forward in, in their life. Um, and we need to try something different. And I think people are now willing to say, well, it's not working. Um, it's not fair, and let's do something different that is more equitable to uh, our community. It, it's going to protect our community more, and it's going to. It's way less expensive to put someone in treatment than to lock them up and run them through the criminal justice system. Joel, do you? Um... I mean, one of the things that I've seen is that this is working its way through the legal system. There's a lot of defenders, and even in some cases, like here in Deschutes County, even prosecutors recognizing that um, the system has failed them and that you, you kind of have this coming together, again, from both sides of the prosecutorial aisle um, to try to make this right with regard to I mean, we know when these convictions come down, it can ruin their ability to get housing, employment, the, the list goes on. Do you feel that within your profession? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, the district attorney uh, in Deschutes County, John Hummel, has, has recognized that um, just throwing someone in jail is not going to solve the problem and it's really that is not much of a deterrent for these people um when when you're putting a needle in your arm you're not worried about going to jail you're worrying about whether you're going to die and people are in there in that dark a place it they're not worried about the police uh stopping them and putting them in jail at that much they have deeper deeper problems, the trauma that they've undergone um, in their childhood or been victimization as teenagers, that's what we, that's what we see when um, you're left with someone who's, who's using heroin or methamphetamine intravenously. So luckily, yeah, you know, the prosecution does have um, alternative. That is a step in the right direction for sure. And now with measure um, 110, we're taking an additional step. But most importantly, I think, is the, the funding issue, because um, that is something that we're running up against right now. Being able to get into treatment, get into treatment quickly, um, I think is, is critical um, to stop the cycle that you know, I've seen for uh, over 15 years now. Yeah, 
Oh, go ahead, Laura. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask, you know, what is it like for your clients? You know, a lot of them, if they can't afford a lawyer, they can't afford to pay for treatment out of pocket. And, um, you know, the Oregon Health Plan, I'm not sure that it's, um, you know, terribly supportive of like, say, um, residential treatment and stuff like that. So what are some of the things that your clients are bumping up against in the system as it now stands? Well, I, th I think you identified a, a couple of things, Laurel. Um, one, there isn't enough um, inpatient beds. Uh, I hear all the time, just get me an inpatient bed, and they're just not available. So being able to get funding for expansion of inpatient beds it is criti it's a critical piece. You know, f for my clients, I think there's a lot of still a lot of hopelessness because let, let's say they get arrested, they get arrested on a, a drug charge. They end up taking the deal, going out in probation. They're told, oh, get into treatment, and, but they don't have a job right now. They don't even have a home right now. So they're en ending up just in the, in the same place feeling that they've failed because they can't get a job. They have an, another conviction that they're rejected again from another application to get an apartment. So they end up um, right back in the same cycle. And I see them again on a probation violation. Well, why didn't you get in treatment? Well, they, they don't have any resources. If they can have those first couple steps, get into a class, not have a conviction. Um, and that's what we see in specialty courts. Um, at least there is some access to um, working on a resume, to getting into treatment. There's, there's some funding, there's just not enough. And, and that's why um, with Measure 110, we're finally getting to see um, an, an expansion. I, it, I think it'll be close to $75 million over the next year of additional funding here in the state um, for drug treatment. And I see that is a huge win-win. When we spend a little bit of money for drug treatment, we've got a huge reduction in, in costs in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and, and my understanding is that, I mean, in the pantheon of states out there, Oregon ranks, I think we're only two people below us. I mean, we're 50 when it comes to addiction treatment. Um, I know we're pretty low when it comes to mental health treatment. That's got to make the transition from, you know, when you're working with these people and then they're trying to hand them off to services. I mean, there's not a lot of places to hand them off to. Yeah, I mean, it's true. We're at the very bottom in states. And when it comes to what we're spending on this treatment, we have a long way to go. Um, and, and, you know, that results in the continual cycle. I think there's a lot of Good, good people who are working in the system, whether in the mental health or the treatment system, but the needs are so much greater than the, the resources that we currently are allocating to, to both uh, addiction and mental health. Um, that, you know, just a, a little bit of increase in that is going to make a huge change um, in the quality of life for so many people here in Deschutes County. When, um, you know, the term deep on the police has been thrown around a lot lately, and, and it's a little misleading, but that is one area where when we're talking about places for addiction and treatment that, that um, 
people are looking for funding for these programs. Do you see that in your work? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think it, it's really super hardly charged when people use um, defund the police. I think uh, it's not really productive of where we want right. to go. And that <laughs> that is getting to a place where we're uh, getting people the, the treatment we need. So it's not so much we want to defund the police as we want to decouple them because we're forcing them into uh, roles that they're not trained to do. That means to be addiction specialists or to be mental health specialists. So taking some of um, the resources that we use, let them focus on criminals and let's use the um, health services to um, deal with the, these community, major community problems that result in homelessness and um, low level um, prop, you know, property crimes, stealing and stuff like that. A lot of that can be eliminated with using um, behavioral therapists, people who are specialized and people in mental health crisis. Well, defund the police always sounds a lot more spicy than redo the county budget. It just yes. doesn't have the same ring to it. Right. Um, uh, but I, I think using a term like decoupling, um, I don't think that's as spicy. Decoupling no, I the police, I, I'm not feeling that. Yeah, but there's always that kind of reaction to it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So um, for decades, you know, since the war on drugs began, uh, people have, you know, documented that there's a racial aspect to, um, to drug policing. Have you encountered that, Joel, in, in some of your work here in Deschutes County? You know, I'm hesitant to do uh, a simple story about that. Certainly, I've represented a number of people in um, communities of of color. I, I think it's important to look at the the evidence and the the Justice Commission's own uh, statistics, where um, you know. Black Oregonians make up 1.9% of the population, but 4.7% um, of um, convictions for drug possession. So it's a factor of multitude that um, Black Oregonians are getting uh, convicted of it. it um, and, and that's why I think um, the NAACP in Portland is in support of Measure 110 because it, they can see the disparate aspects of um, criminalizing drug possession. It ends up affecting communities of color at significantly higher rates. Joel, I know that um, Europe has been ahead of the United States in these trends um, towards uh, decriminalization and, and resisting stigmatizing in these populations. Are there any particular countries that stand out to you or any models that you've seen that, that look good for improving the way America does, um, does this kind of work? So that there are two um, main uh, countries that we, we can look at and see how it's done because they've been doing it for a long enough period of time. There's been enough years under their belt. Um, and one, it's Portugal and Switzerland. 
in Portugal, they basically have done um, similar to what uh, Measure 110 does is uh, not having criminal sanctions, sending uh, drug addicts to jail, but giving them treatment. And that happened in 2001. So we have almost 20 years of um, data coming out of uh, Portugal. And what they have seen is significant reduction in both, um, just for example, heroin users, where in the early 2000s, they were looking at 100,000 people addicted. We're talking about a country of about um, just under 10 million people. And now it's down to 25,000 heroin users. Um, there is some uh, statistics that say, and this was initially, they think it's uh, no longer the case, but initially there seemed to be slightly more experimentation of it. But um, conversely, even though there may have been uh, some greater use of drugs, there's been a significant, significant reduction in um, addiction. And that was partly and probably due to the expansion of, of treatment. And when you destigmatize it, where it's not criminal, when uh, you make it much more likely, people are going to go out and look and seek for those services. So uh, they've also seen a reduction in property crimes, front crimes where people are addicted and they're stealing to use uh, drugs. Um, the other was Switzerland, which in the um, early 90s, uh, in the major cities, you go, go to the park and it would be called like in Zurich, Needle Park. Um, uh, and they were like, what are we going to do that uh, just putting them in jail doesn't, is not solving this problem. Um, there's a major heroin uh, problem in Switzerland and the rates of HIV among that community was, was skyrocketing. So they did uh, similar, um, they weren't putting people in jail they were uh, doing free needle exchange and they were giving them uh, either methadone or, uh, you know, later Suboxone treatment as opposed to them doing heroin and making that free and easily available. And once they destigmatize that, uh, the parks no longer um, are, are, are called needle park. Um, and, and, um, and, Switzerland, they haven't seen an increase. In fact, it's been a decrease in, in heroin use significantly. Um, and there may be other factors, not in terms of uh, changing in culture and um, uh, you know, adults uh, aging out of that. Uh, but we've seen in, in both those cases, in both those countries, that uh, there, there wasn't a huge increase in um, in drug use. So just um, the threat of going to jail uh, or eliminating that is not going to make a bunch of people stick needles in, um, in their arms. Like I said, the fear is not just going to jail. They have bigger uh, issues that we need to deal with, with mental health treatment and, and drug treatment. I mean, it's interesting that you're saying that because, I mean, obviously the people who are opposed to 110 are worried that this is opening the door to, uh, you know, 60s era revival of, you know, drug use and uh, there'd be, there's going to be chaos in the streets. Yeah, I mean, there was the same fear, um, you know, when 
legalization of marijuana came. And, and one of the biggest fears, of course, is like, are our teenage kids going to start doing or they're going to do it so much more because there isn't this stigma. And, it, um, and uh, the, the research has is, is found that there hasn't. And even a really good study out of Colorado that um, teenage kids, there was actually a reduction uh, of marijuana use. So there's with, with, with kids, um, you know, their, their risk factors, um, that deterrence is not, there's so many other factors are so much more valuable to determine whether someone's going to use uh, a drug or not. And it's really that the sole you it's so little um, a factor is the use of, um, of jail. Um, there's so many more factors that are, uh, that are protective of uh, our teenage and young adults. And that's getting them engaged in education and their community and athletics um, so uh, we, we just haven't, we haven't seen it with marijuana. We haven't seen it in places in, in Portugal and Switzerland, and we're, we're not going to see it here in Oregon. Joel, we are running out of time here on the podcast. Is there anything that you want to uh, speak to that we haven't brought up at this point? Um, no, I, I thank you. I, I think it's really important that we do. I've got 16 uh, great attorneys here. They're uh, really becoming a stakeholders in this community, working with both the court system, with the specialty courts, drug courts, um, mental health court, um, doing programs to help military veterans that are stuck into it. Um, I, I'm just thank I'm very thankful that you let me uh, express that. Um, <laughs> Our organization is here for the community. We're working with multiple partners and we look forward to um, the next steps of making this a safe and equitable uh, community. So thanks so much. Joel, I had, I had no idea you had 16 attorneys working over there for you. We, we do, plus a great staff. We have a group of investigators that do more than just investigate. They really help with uh, mitigation and looking, looking for treatment beds and, and looking for um, uh, places where people can go. Um, so we do, a, we do a lot more than uh, sim simply uh, stand up in court. And uh, yeah, we're, we're like an iceberg. You, the 10% you see in court, there's 90% of the hard work behind it that we're doing. So let me ask you one more question before we, yeah. we break out of here. Um, during the pandemic, and especially as this thing is dragging on, what are you guys seeing um, in terms of drug use, mental health needs? Um, is it flat? Is it climbing? What, what's your perspective? Uh, and what's your concerns or not lack of concern? Yeah, I, I, think, I think this is going to be a hard winter is what I think it is. I, I think there was... I think people were, uh, were struggling uh, somewhat during the spring, but there were, I think there was some, there was some hope in it. Uh, so even though we saw our clients struggle somewhat, I think as we go in and we know we're in this long haul and um, numbers going to spike and um, I'm concerned about um, people losing their jobs over the winter and finding uh, over the winter, um, 
I think we need to brace ourselves to really open our hearts because um, a lot of people are going to um, be struggling uh, here because I don't think it's going to get easier for a while, unfortunately, for all of us. Right. Um, so us coming together as a community um, is going to be uh, just critically important over these next uh, six to eight months. Well, Joel, thank you again for taking time to meet with us and, and explaining everything that you guys do. And, um, you know, I concur on uh, what it's going to look like. I, I hope there's more communication about what services are available for folks as we as we do get deeper into colder weather and um, what that's going to mean during the pandemic. So. Yeah. So thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Joel.